Politics in the UK is mired in a murky sleaze scandal. First, there was news of former PM David Cameron lobbying senior ministers by text message. Now, a conversation over tax has surfaced between the Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, if you forgot, and the businessman, James Dyson, if you forgot. We'll offer our swift reply on today's show. Plus, we hear from our man in New York, who this week is delving into the state and city politics on the other side of the pond. Last up, we're on a roll and examining a chain reaction that's led to a global lack of Portaloos. Monocle's distinguished panel discussed these topics of import on today's late edition. Hello and a very warm welcome to the late edition here on Monocle 24. It's Friday the 23rd of April and I'm Josh Fennett here in London. Joining me today is our reliable Friday panel of Editor-in-Chief Andrew Tuck and Head of Newly Shorn Hair and also Monocle 24 Radio, Tom Edwards. Tom, we'll start with you today as we so rarely do. Uh, you rejoined the good ship Monocle after some shore leave, some well-earned shore leave. How is it to be back this week? It's great to be back. London feels very different. Even just taking a stroll around the office earlier. Taking a uh, stroll around the office? <laughs> yeah, I like that big. <laughs> Even just taking a stroll around the neighbourhood earlier, I meant to say. Um, it's really interesting how these small... Uh, these small wins seem to just take get, deliver so much more. So whether it's people who are uh, getting together to have a, you know, a nice plate of uh, spaghetti alla vongole outside a restaurant, or it, earlier in the week I actually went out myself to a, a local pub and had a drink and a bite to eat, it just made you feel like things were getting back to normal. It was pretty powerful. It was, it was absolutely freezing when I had my outdoor meal, but I still had lots of fun because I decided it was going to be fun. And what time were you home? Because there's, there's been a lot of examples of people getting a bit carried away. Uh, no, still a, 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 not a, a sensible hour. It quietens down quickly. It's like people have re- rediscovered their appetite for it, but the, the kind of party animals within us haven't been unleashed fully yet. So I still have got my nightcap on good and, uh, a sensible hour, Josh, on a, for, for a school night. Good. Good. And Andrew, it's great to have the old team back together on a Friday. We weren't together last week. I didn't mean old like that. Don't (laughs) (laughs) as you've you've now been dubbed. Uh, Friday means one thing. You were up with the lark, crossing your T's, dotting your I's, and finishing your column for the Saturday newsletter. Which, if people haven't signed up for, they should now. What's caught your eye this week, pray tell? Well, there was. um, I always worry about these surveys because you can certainly find any kind of data you want if you if you go hunting for it. But there was a survey this week saying that 55% of British people don't want restrictions on foreign travel lifted until 2022 at the earliest. And I think there's some amongst us now who think that actually we should never go anywhere ever again. That and it's I've tried to unpack why that is. Why why have some people decided that actually lockdown isn't just good for them, but they want everybody else to live in, in lockdown in perpetuity. And I don't know what it is. It's it's a, a, the strange lure of the home and its its hold over us. You know, and, and we all love our homes, I hope. And you know, home is a, a very powerful thing, but it becomes more powerful if you leave it every now and then. I think so. It, it's it's a, it's, a, it's it's about our relationship with home. Do you think these people are scared? Well, I, I think it is. It's. You know, there are the people who have some reasonable logic about it, which is you know they believe that we we were so badly hit before because we allowed a new variant. We you know we, we weren't wary enough in the beginning. But as you know, as I say in my piece, there's just another category of people who are miserable sods, and then there's another group of people who just love this. Just they just love it. They just lo- lo- they love never going to work. They love never seeing anyone. They love kind of baking bread all day. 
and the, 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 this the, this this group is the most corrosive because they actually they're kind of trying to get other people to live like them. So they're a bit kind of hair shirters, and I don't want to have anything to do with them. Very interesting. Can't wait to read uh, the column on Saturday morning. Head to monocle.com slash newsletters um, if you haven't already subscribed to that. Plus, it's free. So why the hell wouldn't you? Uh, We're going to start the day here in the UK with Boris Johnson, who's a rather famous person and often in the headlines in this part of the world. The Prime Minister has taken flack this week for a series of texts sent to a prominent businessman last year. The gist of the concerns? Well, that people with access to senior politicians are able to peddle influence and, yes, influence policy without scrutiny. The fallout comes on the back of former PM David Cameron's off-the-record contact with Chancellor Rishi Sunak too. David Cameron seems to have been trying to intercede on behalf of a company in which he had a financial interest. The Conservatives say they didn't break any rules. The opposition Labour Party point to the Conservatives running a sleazy chumocracy, a place where people with access to politicians can lobby them by mobile phone without due diligence being done. The truth as ever is probably somewhere in the middle. But let's listen to someone who actually knows what they're talking about. Lance Price is a former Director of Communications at Number 10 Downing Street under Tony Blair, and he was speaking on The Globalist earlier today. The trouble is that the technology has moved faster than um, government has been able to keep up with. So, um, I mean, my experience, of course, goes back quite a long way now. So uh, in those days, people weren't uh, using WhatsApp. They didn't exist. Um, and if they had mobile phones, they certainly weren't using them in anything like the scale that they that they do now. Um, and, uh, you know, the Whitehall that I know and the civil service that I worked with were very, very strict about being across every conversation between ministers, especially the prime minister, and just about everybody else. Now, of course, they were allowed to have their friends and to have personal chats on the phone with, you know, with, with, with lifelong friends and so on and family. But anything to do with the business of government had to be uh, listened into literally listened into by uh, a civil servant uh, and notes taken and and minutes made so that you could keep track of all the conversations that ministers were having. In today's modern world, that is simply impossible. And that is Lance Price speaking to us on Monocle 24 earlier this morning. Andrew, um, is the fact that uh, prime ministers and senior politicians are accessible by mobile phone simply a sign of the times? We are more connected than ever. The boundaries between the private and the public have become blurred in every aspect of life. Um, is this a storm in a text message? Well, it's interesting what Lance says, but I'm for a rare occasion, I might disagree with him slightly because I think that in the past all that happened was people went to you know the bar, the restaurant, you know the. They they went fox hunting. They went to the golf club. You know they they went wherever you know, wherever they could tap on their old friend's shoulder and say, "Can I have a quiet word? You know, I, I want to talk to you about you know something that's happening in my constituency. You know, with a a business I've got some money in. Could you help me?" Now, it's a, a, an interesting line, and I think this is what people always talk about: the smell test. Does it come up smelling of roses? And I'm not sure with this Lex Greensill story, that it, it's very good for Cameron because it if he was doing something to just protect, you know, a manufacturing company in his consti- old constituency or maybe he had friends, you know, whatever, who he wanted to, you know, get some advice for, it would, it would be okay. Even if he was going to make a few bob out of this, it would be okay. But he was going to make millions out of this and it's the scale of the number of people that he contacted that seems to be making everyone a little bit uncomfortable. But in the end, what's interesting is the people he sent those messages to 
I think they kind of mostly did the right thing. And certainly you know, the, Lex Greensill wasn't bailed out. It didn't get any kind of preferential treatment. But of course, we've now seen other texts being leaked this week, which between Boris Johnson and James Dyson. And again, I, I don't think they, they're they perfect, but I don't think they're going to stick to Boris in any way because here we have James Dyson, who is, is, is a, it's a contract over building ventilators and, and he was asking for you know, some tax arrangements to be done in his favour. Boris was like promising everything. But again, you know, in the end, Dyson was you know, a good talker. He, he, had, he never built these things. They didn't really come to any fruition. So all in all, does it smell very good? Not great. But did anything really terribly corrupt happen? Probably not. What should happen in the future? Well, you'd you'd like to say that every phone call would be logged and things. But the reality is you also want your MPs to be accessible to leading figures. And it's just naive to imagine that somebody you went to university with, you know, that you know, or that you were pals within Parliament is not going to know your number and is not going to ask you for a favour. It's, it's just that you, what you then do with that request. If you bend the rules and you just ain't corrupt, then it should come out and it, and you should be lambasted for it, prosecuted, whatever. But here it's like, it, it's not great, but it's not as terrible as the papers would like to, you believe. Tom, where do you sit on this? It's been something that the uh, Labour opposition, as I alluded to in my queue, has made much out of. Keir Starmer, who's failing to get much cut through at Prime Minister's questions every week, uh, coined a three-word phrase. You just said sleaze, sleaze, sleaze. And there is a danger, I think, that that just sticks to all politicians, doesn't just stick to the Tories, because there is an overriding sense, as Andrew said, that if you know people, you'll talk to them, and if you talk to them, that might be some manner of influence peddling. Do you think this exposes um, a real and genuine problem that needs addressing in the UK? I mean, I think it's a problem to a degree. I kind of agree with what Andrew said. I think Starmer's decision to go for that sleaze word, hes he knows that will make the papers and he knows it will make the public think back to, um, you know, the back to basics Tory misdeeds of the kind of early 90s when the party unravelled under, under John Major and they got eventually unceremoniously booted out of office by, you know, by new Labour and it was seen as this new dawn. But the idea that, you know, cronyism is exactly what Andrew said. The idea that's a new thing and the fact that it's more creeping and insidious and dangerous to democracy because it's happening via WhatsApp. Andrew's exactly right. These conversations have always happened. And, you know, billionaire has a chat to make sure that his financial arrangements are a bit more you know, expedient. Well, yeah, of course that's going to happen. And I think it's unrealistic. It's 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 a vainglorious ambition to imagine that you can completely um, segment all aspects of society so that politicians are never put in a position where some of these boundaries are, are blurred. Having said that, you know, as Andrew said, prosecute people if they've broken the law. What we do need to make sure of is that where there are rules and they're broken or where they're pushed in an unacceptable way, that there is consequence. One of the problems with that Greensill thing, we had a senior civil servant who essentially took a paid role in Greensill while still working as a civil servant. Now, to my mind, that is totally unacceptable. And there are um, rules and regs that govern that kind of conflict of interest. And those need to be respected. And if they're not robust enough to stop that from happening, then they need to be to be bolstered. But I do agree with Andrew in as much as you know, I think it's an, an over-exaggeration to suggest that it's a completely corrupt edifice. But I, I'll, I'll, the final thing I'd say is they don't do themselves any favours. I mean, especially Boris. And he's come out and he said, you know, oh, there's nothing rum going on, playing the game as usual. 
it just, I agree with Andrew, it just leaves a bad, I don't have a bad smell, it leaves a bad taste. What's also interesting is, you know, that I always look to the, what the, should be the supportive press of this, this government, so the, the right-wing press here in the UK, to see how they're reporting on it. Now, you have to remember there is some, there is some history here. They, they, they can't stand David Cameron. You know, he was, you know, he, he, he allowed the Brexit vote to happen, but he was never gung-ho about, you know, Brexit. So they don't, they, they really can't stand him. And they've got a lot of empathy for, for Boris and they, you know, they want Boris to succeed and they see Boris as their, ultimately as their hero. So they should be very supportive. So what, what they're doing is that they are trying to pick off David Cameron and, and, and leave Boris a little bit kind of uh, ring-fenced. But the interesting bit is this other side story that's ticking along, that's been ticking along for weeks now, which it, 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 which the papers oddly don't like, which is it seems that Boris Johnson managed to secure some cash from donors that was given to him in a very kind of weird way so that he could do up his flat at number 10. And so, oddly, they're go- the, the, when you read the, 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 the right-wing press... There they, there, they seem to smell proper kind of like bad behaviour, and the papers again today saying you know, that now some another government official has been dragged into the story to try and unravel it, put it everything back in order, get the smell to go away. But again, because there's two or three of these things, Boris is beginning to look a little bit kind of vulnerable to accusations that he's not dealing with. Parliament, government, his his own affairs in a very scrupulous way. And the last tiny thing on that is, you know, we know that Boris in the past has pleaded poverty because he's got, you know, an untold numbers of children hidden away in various houses across London and ex-wives and mistresses that he's still kind of handing out cash to. And he's said, look, you know, I can't continue kind of like supporting a kind of you know, a whole workhouse full of children on on my government salary. So they, I think it makes him look vulnerable if he's like taking cash to do up his flat. So anyway, he's 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 it will come round to stick to him as well as Cameron because you you can't divide it. Well, we will be following uh, that story in our usual rye and spry manner across Monocle 24. We're, we're going to have to move on quickly now. And our next item, you in luck listeners, uh, comes from Henry Reese Sheridan. In his regular end-of-week letter from New York, Henry this week takes stock of New York Governor Andrew Cuomo's latest scandal. Yes, another one. And developments across New York City's mayoral race. New York Governor Andrew Cuomo has notched up four investigations into his conduct in the space of one year. It's a remarkable achievement... First, there was his administration's underreporting of deaths in New York nursing homes during the pandemic. Then came multiple allegations of inappropriate sexual behaviour from former and current staff members. Then came the revelation that Cuomo might have finangled preferential access to government-run coronavirus testing for members of his family. Surely... I thought to myself, after the virus testing revelation made it a scandal hat-trick for Cuomo, he can't manage another. But then this week, a separate investigation was opened into the composition of a book that Cuomo wrote. The book is called American Crisis, Leadership Lessons from the COVID-19 Pandemic. According to its blurb, it tells the riveting story 
of how Cuomo took charge in the fight against COVID-19. And it offers the intimate and inspiring thoughts of a leader at an unprecedented historical moment. The blurb says that this is all told in the governor's own voice. The current investigation by the New York State Attorney is concerned with how many people the governor enlisted to produce his own voice, who they were and how they did it. It has emerged that both junior and senior members of his staff were enlisted to work on the book. At the senior end of the spectrum, Cuomo's top aide Melissa DeRosa helped him edit early drafts. At the junior end, assistants were instructed to print out drafts of the book and ferry them over to Mr Cuomo at his home, the executive mansion in Albany. The investigation will look at whether this amounts to a misuse of state resources. I think it's fair for taxpayers to ask if the time and energy Cuomo staff gave to a book about handling the pandemic might have been better spent handling the pandemic. Their work on American Crisis wasn't the only editing work the governor's staff were busying themselves with at this time. The period in which the book was being written coincided with the period the state's nursing home death figures were being massaged. The truth is, the book itself is unnecessary. We already have a premium media product documenting Cuomo's pandemic heroics. In July of last year, Cuomo released a poster that depicts a mountain, as well as several other devices, as a metaphor for New York's experience of the pandemic, with Cuomo at the compositional and conceptual centre of the image. It's beyond me to describe the poster in detail here. You should Google New York Tough poster to see it for yourself. Suffice it to say, the poster provides, in my opinion, more than enough detail about Cuomo's role saving New York. And it retails for only $14.50 to the list price of $30 for American Crisis. Bargain. Turning to the mayoral race, there's been some significant endorsements in the past week. The frontrunner Andrew Yang won the support of a former mayoral candidate and rival called Carlos Menchaca. Yang and Menchaca's politics are far from perfectly aligned. For one, while Yang broadly supports development in the city, Menchaca is best known for scuppering the redevelopment of Industry City, a manufacturing zone in Brooklyn. But Menchaca likes Yang's proposals for a universal basic income for New Yorkers and public bank to serve low-income and undocumented residents. Menchaca's endorsement will come as a relief to Yang, who has faced a cold reception from many on the left who criticise his closeness to the real estate and finance industries. There was a time when New York's left was expected to coalesce around another candidate, Scott Stringer. But Stringer has fallen short of expectations. This week, his listless mayoral campaign enjoyed a shot in the arm. He won the endorsement of New York's influential teachers' union, the United Federation of Teachers is an old-school political institution that respects Stringer as a candidate who has ascended through conventional mechanisms. Stringer served on the community planning board as a mere teenager. He then proceeded to shimmy his way up the greasy pole of New York politics from district leader to state assemblyman to Manhattan borough president to city comptroller, the position he currently holds. 
Unfortunately for Stringer, conventional backgrounds are out of fashion. This is not true only in politics. This year, the art world had its feathers ruffled by the enormous financial success of Mike Winkleman, a.k.a. Beeple, whose digital work sold at Christie's for $69.3 million with fees. This made him one of the world's top three most valuable living artists. This despite the fact that Winkleman never attended art school, instead majoring in computer science at college before a stint designing corporate websites. Meanwhile, in the world of media, the digital newsletter subscription platform Substack has been wooing top journalistic talent away from even the most prestigious and storied legacy media companies. Both Substack and Beeple reflect the ascendancy of the values of the tech industry, which favours disruption over consistency. Andrew Yang can be viewed as a product of this shift, at least in part. He cut his teeth in tech-adjacent entrepreneurialism and has never held political office. From this background, he might beat Stringer to the mayor's office that Stringer's entire life appears to have been preparing him for. Our reporter in the Big Apple there, Henry Rees Sheridan. Last up on the show, we're exploring a rather malodorous tale from the Times today, which suggests that a global lack of portable toilets may blight the plans of many looking forward to hosting outdoor events this summer. The reasons? A surge in demand from construction companies, trouble with manufacturers in Texas, and a booming outdoor rave culture in China. Andrew, it's a dirty business, but someone's got to cover it. Uh, Why did this story catch your eye? Well, it kind of hints at a broken cistern, I think, of uh, of, uh, (laughs) logistics. Oh, Uh, wow. And, uh, yeah, we don't get too bogged down in all the detail. (laughs) Are you reading this? (laughs) What was fascinating about it? So it's a a down-page story. It's page three, I think, in the Times. I think it should have been a spread. Because uh, then you could have wiped your rear side with it, with it as well. But you know, it, it, what's fascinating about this is it, it hints at all these weird things that are going on at the moment. So it is about logistics, and I think logistics are fascinating. So it turns out that, you know, that there was a, some storms, and there was a breakdown in producing plastic in Texas. There's over demand in China for portaloos. In Europe, lots of the building companies have flourished during lockdown. And they want to keep their builders safe. So instead of having like one little kind of crapper out front, they've got a multitude of them kind of lined up. Um, so all in all, it, it then it puts untold strain on <laughs> the regions, and suddenly you know you're 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 well you're up up the creek without the paddle. Um, and I can confirm to listeners that Andrew just seemed to reel off those puns <laughs> one by one. He wasn't he wasn't reading it or anything. Um, Tom, is there an opportunity for an entrepreneur or the private sector in some way to step in here? Because it feels a bit like this might be a you know growth market for someone flush with ideas. Yeah, I'm just so I was just reeling from Andrew's from Andrew's <laughs> opening remarks on this theme. Is this why you kept talking about things that don't smell right earlier in the programme? It's been a theme that's run through. No, it is, it is extraordinary. And the detail in this piece, I read the, the Times article on Andrew's recommendation. So it's, it's a huge growth in rave culture in China. Who knew? Um, and it's caused this complete sort of imbalance in Portland. You don't want an imbalance when you're talking well, about Portland. And also, because I, we know that many events here in the UK are not going to go ahead this summer, not because of COVID, because they can't get insurance to go ahead. And here you had Alex James, who's ex-Blur, who's organising a summer festival. So, it's, you know, it's all going down the pan because, you know, they, they just they just 
can't get hold of the the loos. Or as he put it, there aren't enough bogs. That's what he said. <laughs> but this is this is actually interesting because the same thing has happened in the restaurant industry where it tailed off very quickly. People went into lockdowns. You know, let's say you had 20 staff. When you give them a call a year later, they've had three careers since they quit. Yeah, yeah. When you think about all the stuff that you had in the fridge, all of the way that you worked out how you were doing your fresh food or changing the beer barrels, suddenly when it comes to restarting and when you're only given the, the nod at a week's notice, none of that stuff's available. So it's also the, the resupply and the, I don't know, the, the coming back into action of the supply chain that's quite interesting. I'm also fascinated because obviously... I don't know. I want to. Is it literally the ones that could have been like in a in a Somerset field for a music festival that are now in kind of you know Guangzhou? I don't know. Have they all been shipped there, or does it mean just the production lines went there? How long does it take to make one of these things? Because you would imagine it would be reasonably quick turnaround. They can't all be coming from the same factory, I presume. So it's 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 just amazing how you can't kind of restock something so simple and and it's it's also it's, it's also one of these great stories where it's just one thing goes wrong so it was a storm that you know put scupper to the the, the supply in the first place and now you know events are failing just because there isn't a, a portaloo but arguably we're seeing the same thing in india with vaccine supplies where the serum institute is a global supplier of all sorts of medicine but particularly the astrazeneca vaccine um a vast surge there means that it's being used domestically and therefore not being exported elsewhere. So you do have these funny stumbling blocks, which ironically, a more open and transparent system would help to move things around. But when all of the production's in one place, it's a bit harder to do, isn't it? A bit of a strain. Well, yeah, and we saw, of course, with the... Think of the, like, you know, the Suez Canal blockage. Again, some of these things depend on real logistics, moving things around the world quickly. And if you have, uh, you know, a big block in a, in a core artery like the Suez Canal, <laughs> uh, you, you end up with a, a fully constipated system and then you're in real trouble. It's funny how, how globally reliant we are on all of these things. And as much as we could keep this steady stream of stories flowing, I'm afraid we've got to go. <laughs> and sadly, that's all the time we have on today's late edition. A big thank you, as always, to Andrew Tuck and Tom Edwards. Joining me in studio at a safe distance, of course, um, at Midori House. Our studio manager today was Steph Chungu. Thank you, Steph. And our producer, all the way over in Milan, a teeny voice down the line and the writer of an excellent script, was Ed Stocker. I'm Josh Fennett, and the late edition returns the same time on Monday. Until then, have a wonderful weekend. <laughs>